Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. Now, if the quality of a podcast is directly correlated with the practical value you get from it, then I think today's episode might be the best one I've released so far. My guest is Mark Efron, the author of Eight Steps to High Performance. We had a fantastic conversation in which we discussed the importance of big goals, what changes managers need to make now they're working with remote teams, and the difference between evidence-based advice and management fads. He offered some incredibly useful insights about how to build up a network from scratch and how to keep your connections engaged by LinkedIn and email. We also discussed the connection between physical health and performance. As you'll hear, there isn't much evidence to prove the link, but one thing that's vitally important is a good night's sleep, which is something I haven't had this week, but you don't want to know about that. I think you'd probably prefer to listen to Mark and I discussing the secrets of high performance. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, please check out the previous episodes. Make sure you subscribe and please share it with other people you think might find it interesting. Finally, if you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could give it a rating. It really does make a difference. So thanks again for listening. And here's my conversation with Mark Efron. Mark, it's a great pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to a very uh, interesting conversation. Absolutely. Well, let's just jump straight into it. I'm interested if it's possible for everyone to follow a formula for success, or do we need to find our own path? Yeah, I would suggest it's possible for everyone to be a higher performer. The path they follow might not be identical. So let's start with that. We can all do better. Now, I don't go to the the extent of any of us can be anything because I don't think that's true. There's you know intelligence factors that limit that. There are personality factors, but we can all be better. And what I lay out in, in uh, Eight Steps to High Performance is what's proven to help you be better at work. And it's a very work-focused book. This is not about how do you have a better life. Uh, this is purely about how can you be a uh, an even higher performer at work. And the good news is the steps that you take are the same. Now, how you execute those steps may be different. So to your question, is it the exact same path? No, probably not. But if we know that things like setting big goals and engaging in the right behaviors and connecting effectively with others, if we know those work, then the question is, how does Mark do that or how does Ollie do that? Maybe differently, but the same steps are going to to stand true. You mentioned goals. So why are big goals so important? And I, what I'm really interested in is how you continually revisit those goals to measure your success along the way. And let's start with why are big goals important? What's really interesting about the the science is one of the most conclusive, one of the largest findings about what motivates us and what drives higher performance is having those big goals. As simple as it sounds, as basic as it should be, um, the science is extraordinarily clear that if you do that well, you are likely going to perform at higher levels. We're motivated by challenge. So if I say, Ollie, make this the, the best podcast ever as measured by A, B, and C, you're going to try, if you're like most people, you're going to try to make it the best because I've set metrics. Oh, I'm going to show him it's going to be the best ever. So we're motivated by that challenge and we're motivated to continue responding to that challenge with more effort uh, up to a point where either we're physically exhausted or I just don't see the relationship between more effort and, and the reward. So why even set those big goals? Because the science is really clear. They matter just kind of very clearly. Now you can't have 10 big goals because it'll kill you, um, but you can certainly have three or four big goals. And now, of course, I've forgotten the second part of your question, Ollie. 
Yeah, it's about revisiting those. So how frequently should we do that? And what role does that play in how we evolve them? Sure. From a work perspective, I would suggest once a quarter should be often enough to say, I promised the big boss I would do X. Does that still feel like the right thing given the environment, um, You know, given other dynamics? What I would suggest is if you find yourself revising your goals too often, you've probably not set your goal at the right level. You've probably set more of a tactic. And then when that tactic is impossible, you say, oh, I'm going to abandon that and do something else. If, if the goal is I'm going to sell 100 widgets during the year and then you know one small thing gets in the way and you say, well, no, it'll be 80 widgets, then it's probably not the, probably not the right goal. So much has changed in the workplace over the past 18 months. The dynamics between managers and their teams often has, has changed. And I guess this applies not just to goal setting, but just general uh, management and coaching. How, how does that change? Do we have to do that more frequently? Do you have to have more frequent check-ins when we're working with the distributed team? Yeah, I would suggest a uh, short answer, yes. And, and the dynamics behind that one, the unbelievably increased power of the worker over the past 18 months. I mean, workers, at least high-performing workers, um, have amazing power right now in the workplace. And uh, and they have the leverage to say, I would like you know more of this to happen and less of this to happen, which suggests we need to be listening more often and more carefully um, and with more with more care in those conversations. So what I would suggest is most managers probably weren't engaging in enough feedback, enough coaching, enough guidance conversations anyway, uh, before mm. everything uh, became messy over the past 18 months. Uh, but it does mean given the the increased power of the worker, given the, the lack of face-to-face that most people are experiencing these days, more frequent and more structured conversations are absolutely necessary. So if I used to have quarterly check-ins, well, now it's monthly check-ins. If we used to have monthly check-ins, now it's weekly check-ins. Um, but structured in the way that's productive, not everything going okay, Ollie? Sure is, Mark. Okay, let's get on with the job. Now, yeah. Structured conversation. Um, Ollie, uh, I know you have three big goals this year. The one I'm most interested in right now is goal A. Let's talk about where are you with that? How does that feel? How do we make... So kind of structured, disciplined conversations and showing enough care and I'm trying to avoid the E word, empathy, because I'm hearing that really overdone right mm-hmm. now, but showing enough care. Hey, Ollie, what's going on? And, and Folly says, man, I am up to here. We got a bunch of family stuff. Okay, let's listen to that and understand how that factors into um, you know, what that individual can do at work. I've certainly got experience uh, managing people for whom having a conversation which isn't purely around KPIs and OKRs it's quite important, you know. That we've got the conversation about how we're hitting our goals, but there's that very, you know very different context where we're saying, "Look, how are things going for you? What could I be doing to help you improve or to create an environment in which you have the conditions to deliver your best?" Is it important to separate the two, or do they go hand in hand? I think it's important for managers to understand how their team member wants to balance that conversation. So maybe I'm speaking to. Ollie A. And Ollie A is all about, hey, did you see the game over the weekend? How did that go? And hey, we're going on holiday next week. And that's cool. I need to understand he wants to manage the conversation that way. Mm. Maybe Ollie B is is much more about business and uh, doesn't like his boss understanding what's going on at home. And so I need to be aware of that and manage those conversations 
uh, in a very uh, a very customized way. But also, I would suggest that I, as a manager, should lean in a little bit. And even if I say, oh, Ollie B doesn't like talking about home, it doesn't hurt for me to say, hey, how are things going? I know there's a lot of stress in the world right now. Um, you know, anything that I can help out or how can I help you, you know, get through kind of this messy period. I think it helps to put one step forward and some people are going to accept that. Other people are going to say, I'm good. Thanks. Hmm. Right. Um, but you've extended a hand and if they, they need that hand, then, um, then now they know it's available to them. You mentioned that the employee's position has strengthened somewhat. I think another trend, which I'm seeing, and perhaps you are as well, is there are lots of people perhaps going it alone. I think as the markets become more global and the best talent can work for an organization anywhere in the world, there's, there's plenty of people who can see them better monetizing their skills and expertise by being a contractor, a freelancer, a contingent worker, whichever way mm-hmm. you put it. I'm interested from a management point of view here. So look, Increasingly, I see more of these contingent workers in people's teams, but you still have to manage the team. So does that dynamic change things? How can leaders go about creating the right balance in the team and continuing having the right level of communication? I would suggest how you manage a contingent worker is 98% the same as how you manage any other worker. What I would suggest is it's the the onboarding and integration that needs to happen probably much more quickly. So if if I know Ollie's joining my team as a full-time person, great, we've got a three-month ramp up. You're going to meet a bunch of people, get to know the culture, and really kind of embed yourself here. But if I know that you're on a 16-month assignment, okay, Two weeks. Here's who you need to get to know. Let's get you up to speed. Here's the project plan. You know, we need to get that onboarding uh, and up ramping uh, done much more quickly. But then after that, it's still you now. What goals do you have? How are you doing? How can I help you out? Yeah. Um, you know, do you do you know the right people around the organization? So I would suggest the fundamentals of management are going to apply either way. It's probably much more important though that you you get those people up to speed quickly. And perhaps if uh, if Ollie's working for me and I think this guy is good, I don't want him to be a contractor. I want him here full time. Cool. What's your employment proposition? How can I say, hey, Ollie, I know you don't like working for a company. Let me tell you why I think this might be a little bit different right here. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Um, so I think it's also always having that eye for talent and yeah. saying um, independent of the relationship with which you joined the organization, I want the best people on my team. I, I should be a scout for talent. And if I see a good player over there, I don't care what the relationship is. You know, let's see if I can get them on board. Yeah. Yeah, no, really good point. Really good point. So uh, let's return to your book. So you mentioned earlier on the scientific evidence, particularly around goal setting. Now, my understanding is that you did a huge amount of research for that book. It's not opinion-based. It's, it's, it's evidence-based. So can we talk about notions like the 10,000 hour rule, the growth mindset. We're all familiar with them, aren't we? We all are, we're familiar with these ideas. Well, look, I think I've learned from you that perhaps they're not quite as uh, accurate as we might think. But I suppose what I'm more interested in is whether that matters and whether actually buying able to be able to you know, reach the public consciousness in and of itself, that's a good thing. It, it would be lovely if it were easy to go through life saying, I'm only going to do what is conclusively proven to be true. First, you might not do much, um, but but secondly, you'll probably be a bit of an annoying individual uh, with your friends. Um, but what I would suggest is when it comes to things like those, I'll call them management fads, there's 
<clears throat> there's a difference between do no harm or does no harm and and does harm. So let's take something like um, what's one of my favorite fads, um, emotional intelligence. Now, if you study emotional intelligence, what you'll find is it's really it's 99 percent already either intelligence or aspects of your personality, meaning it's not a separate independent thing. It's simply taking something that we already know, whether it's you know intelligence or personality, and slicing it up in a different way. Yet people like to talk about it differently. Oh, you need IQ and EQ. Well, that's like saying I need apples and apples. Mm. Yes. Um, so sometimes it's that we put a sexy new label on something and it sounds good and we grab onto it. There's no harm in that. You're not you're not making up a fake concept and then sending people down the wrong road. You're simply kind of relabeling things, you know, old wine and new bottles and, and selling it, making a buck. Not my favorite, but no harm done. Yeah. Let's then switch to something like strengths. Um, there's been a lot of books, meaning millions and millions and millions of books sold on focus on your strengths. And the challenge is people think, oh, if I focus on my strengths, I'll be better. It's like, Actually, the reason why most of us succeed is because we keep eliminating the weaknesses that are holding us back. Your strengths tend to take care of themselves. They're your strengths because you probably enjoy doing them or you're just naturally hardwired to be good at them. And if you simply want to focus on your strengths and you're likely creating a very small bubble around you uh, and your career for what you're going to be great at. Uh, and so I look at something like focusing on your strengths and say that actually can do harm because if Ollie's my manager and says, Mark, just do what you're good at. And my peers are saying, yeah, but he's a total jerk. That's what he needs to correct, not mm. the stuff he's good at. You know, he needs to, to trim the, the tails of what he's not doing well. I'm going to be very narrow at something, but I'm going to ignore all the things that I could be better at to either work better with others or move up a level. So I'm going to separate the these fads into do no harm or do harm. And I think some of them actually can do harm uh, in terms of stunting our, our speed of our growth. Yeah. I find that intriguing, actually, because this, I would say a, a, another common concept is the idea that the top engineers at Google are, they're not twice as good as their next competitor in their role. They're a hundred times better and they create a hundred times more value. Now, in that situation, are we not, optimizing for their strengths should we not be saying well actually look let's double down on what you're great at because that is where the value is created rather than trying to round those edges yeah i would separate that question into two pieces one is is it true that the best deliver 10x more than the average uh there's actually some really good research that the absolute best let's go 95th percentile and a lot of this has been done on things like coding are at least 3x to 5x better by whatever the metrics are they're using than kind of average or slightly below average. Mm. So the science is clear that the best deliver multiples better results than the average. Now, the question then is, well, then shouldn't everyone focus on their strengths? Well, if you only want to be really good at what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with focusing on the strengths. If you don't want to ever be a manager of coders or in charge of IT architecture or some other role, cool, just keep doing what you're doing, but recognize that you're limiting what you're going to do going forward. But someone's going to say, yeah, he's great at coding, but he can't manage anybody. I would never mm -hmm. put that guy in charge of anyone. Okay, well, you just then, you know, you just plateaued. You're, you're never going to go above the level of coding, and that might be okay. 
But I think the question for your listeners would be, am I happy doing what I'm doing right now forever? In which case, yes, focus on your strengths and maybe still understand or there are a few weaknesses that um, I could probably you know, at least lighten up uh, to make myself a bit better. But if you say, no, I'm, I'm happy where I am, but I would love to do either something different or something more, well, then you likely will need new strengths going forward. And yeah. you will not be able to focus on just the the old strengths that got me here. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith's classic book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, is probably the uh, the easiest way to say strengths are not what's going to make most people successful. Talking about management fads, the 10,000-hour rule has been disproved. And I, I like David Epstein's book, Range, which talks about the idea of broadening your your knowledge base and and actually i really like the the thing around creativity which you know creativity is essentially matching two ideas together which haven't previously put been put together and i think the only way you do that is by both improving your weaknesses but also taking inspiration from many different areas Absolutely. I mean, let's go to 10,000 hours and then the kind of the connecting more dots differently. 10,000 hours I would put in the does no harm. If you spend 10,000 hours on something, you're likely to be better. (laughs) Are you likely to be a world champion? Well, if you have the right intelligence, if you have the right personality, and if you have a lot of luck, because luck is still, depending on who you look at, 30 to 40% of the equation, cool. So no harm done. Um, on the kind of connect more dots faster, part of that also goes to just raw intelligence. So smarter people can connect more dots more quickly. They see more dots, they identify them as dots, and then they join them up more quickly than others. So some people will always have a natural advantage, but just getting out and about, learning more fields. I mean, one of the things I love is architecture. Now it has nothing to do with what I do on a daily basis, but sometimes when I'm looking at or reading about architecture, I'll think, oh, you know what? That is like that. Yeah. And, and literally just kind of seeing things from a different angle or seeing a different framework or a different schema for how do you how you organize can help a lot of us kind of connect dots in a way. So if I never look for any dots, I'm never going to be able to connect any dots. So the more dots I look for in more ways, uh, the, the more opportunity I will have to do that. I think your unique experience or one's unique experience is, is often the thing which allows us to differentiate ourselves from the next person there's there's different variables aren't there you can you can work hard you can study the same material but I think ultimately your personal interests come into I'm wondering from your point of view whether that skills and passion do contribute towards career success because fulfillment plays a part in that too doesn't it yeah absolutely and let's maybe package part of that as just ambition some people have more ambition than other people, and ambition has been shown to be independent from kind of core personality or core intelligence. So I can be really smart and have a lot of ambition or not very much ambition. And ambition can be, some of it can be trait-based, meaning, yeah, I woke, wake up every morning and I feel ambitious and let's get to it. I don't like those people because that's not me. Um Or there are more people who are uh, kind of situationally ambitious, which is either hey, that looks cool. I want to be great at it. Or they said I wasn't great at that. I'll show that SOB. I'll be fantastic at it. So there's that level of of ambitious uh, drivers as well. So um, I think the starting point there is um, ambition and, and wanting to do more can m- make almost anyone better, whether it's driven by state or trade. Quite a few of our listeners will be looking at uh, new career opportunities, thinking about how they pivot their careers. And part of that, I think there's a trend toward, for example, portfolio careers. There's also people who maybe have a side hustle. And I often talk about the value of finding a niche and owning that niche. 
But then what you want to be able to then do is scale out of it. So I'm interested if you've got any thoughts around that. Sure. A couple of thoughts on that first, and and I'm quoting others. This is not original. At least at first, don't focus on your passion. Focus on what's going to make you money because what's going to make you money is going to enable you to focus on your passion. So there are people, well, I just love being, I love art. I want to be an artist. It's like, do you like starving? Because that's what happens (laughs) to a lot of artists. Now, maybe if you like art, cool, let's make that my passion I do on the side, or it's my side hustle, but I code well, so great, let's let's get 100K a year coding, and that will allow me to spend time doing art and see if, if that's what I want to do. So I think some of the worst advice is either do what you're good at uh, or do what you love. It's like, well, no, love what you do, not necessarily do what you love. Um and again, that's going to be a different route for everyone. Maybe you say, I don't care if I starve, you know, the artistic passion is what I'll live on. Great. Good for you. Um, <laughs> but I would much rather have people live happy, comfortable lives and be good citizens and contribute to their community because they have productive jobs. And then maybe it's that side hustle that they do to explore um, their side passions. And it's likely going to be that that core job is going to help them to understand, well, here's how I will need to succeed. Let's say I want to be an artist on the side. Great. Well, I'm probably going to learn a lot about business and think about how do I sell art? How do I build relationships? There's a lot of, of fungible skills that are going to translate. But I would say, you know, learn from the best in whatever field you're in. A lot of that's going to be knowledge that's very transferable to what you want to do on the side. But I would start by saying, no, don't focus on what you love to do unless you're very lucky that what you love to do is investment banking and you're going to make, you know, five million a year doing it. (laughs) There's a section in your book we talk about connections. As you work your way through your career, you build your network and um, often that's specific to the industry you work in. Um, I'm interested whether you take a particular approach to building a network. You know, should you have a strategy for it? Should you let it happen organically? Uh, I would suggest some people who are naturally good at it, it's going to happen organically. If you're an extrovert, you're likely to have a good network almost by default. Um, It might not sound like it, but I'm a massive introvert. And so for me, I've had to be very, very intentional. And uh, thank God for LinkedIn, because LinkedIn has been what's allowed me to to have a network. I mean, I've maxed out of my LinkedIn contacts. Um, Everybody who's on my LinkedIn contact gets an email from me at least every two weeks with a new article or new idea. And that's how I built my network. Um, but I've, I'm very intentional about it. Every day I go through my LinkedIn suggestions and I, I invite people to my list. Now, mm-hmm. if I had to call people every day and do that, if it was, no, not 10 invites, it's 10 phone calls, I wouldn't have any network because I'm not naturally wired to do that. So I, I, I found a way that allows me to build a network, but I'm still very disciplined about doing that. The yeah. science is super clear. People with more connections do better in their careers, just flat out absolutely flat out. And if some of your listeners are introverts like me and they say, I can't think of anything more scary than reaching out to people, LinkedIn is about the lowest risk way you can do that. And even if you're, you want to change careers um, or you want to uh, do something different, LinkedIn's still good for that. Reach out. I mean, I have people reach out to me all the time. Mark, I'm thinking about going into talent management or human resources. What's the one or two things I should do? I'm happy to offer that advice. Mm. You know, they're not asking for an hour phone call. They just want some quick answers. You can build a network that way as well. A couple of practical follow-up questions, actually. So you, you mentioned that you're constantly adding to your list. 
is that done through LinkedIn suggestions? They often say you may know this person or are you intentionally going out and looking at people with a particular profile, a particular background? How does that work? Uh, well, LinkedIn's going to feed me like, as we all see, like 12 different categories, you know, people from here and from here. Um, yeah. I normally scroll all the way to the bottom on, on my phone, which is where like other people you may know, that's where HR for me, it's, it's people in HR. So it's HR practitioners show up. I don't want consultants connecting with me because I don't sell things to consultants. Yeah. Uh, and so anyone who has an, a job in corporate HR, I want to have see my ideas. Uh, I mean, a lot of succeeding in consulting means you're proud of your ideas and you're happy to tell other people your ideas. And so my view is if you're in HR, you need to see my ideas. Yeah. So I'm going to invite every single person I can. Um, and again, I'm up to my, my 30,000 limit on LinkedIn. So that's taken me 10 years, but I've just been very disciplined. I'm also disciplined in, in taking people off the list. So we have a pretty sophisticated CRM system that we use. And if people haven't opened an email in a year, then great. Let's take them off the list. Let's not annoy them. Um, and, uh, and let's free up space on the list. And to, to that point, so you mentioned you're regularly contacting them every two weeks. Do you do that through LinkedIn or do you do that through an email database? As well? I do it through email database. So, uh, you know, we use one of the, the big providers and we, we blast out our, our emails. Uh, but my view is there's always something of value. We don't maybe once a year we'll sell an email that I would call a salesy email. Every other time it's here's a new article. I try and write a lot of articles. Here's new research. Our team does really nice research in the field that we're in. Um, and because I've been doing this for 10 years, we can pull from the library. Here are three classics for you that you haven't seen. Before. So uh, we always try to say, uh, sell or sorry, uh, send something of value because the fastest way to get an unsubscribe is by just a blatant, I'm offering a class. You should pay money and attend. It's like, yeah. okay, well, 98% of people don't care about that. But if there's a new idea, they'll at least yeah. click. yeah. yeah, yeah. So sorry, one last practical follow-up. I know yeah, keep these, going. these sorts sure. of questions are really important to people. So so you connect with somebody, you then ask for their email address and say, do you want to sign up to my list? That's the kind of workflow. I connect with them and then within LinkedIn, their email address is there. So we we pull those email addresses. We send a note to them saying, hey, thanks for connecting. We love to send interesting content to the people that I'm connected with. Um, if you don't want that, then you know, click on this link and we'll take you off our list. So I do ask permission before sending. We started doing that about five years ago and we, we cut our unsubscribe rate by 75% by yeah. doing that. Uh, because then it feels a little more personal. It's not, I'm going to blast you with something, you know, a day after you agreed. We wait about a month. We send them that note saying, you know, that thanks for being connected. And then probably within three weeks after that, we'll send them something. So there's a reasonable period between the time they say, yes, I'll connect and, uh, and the first piece of content we send. Yeah. And like a lot of things in business, you know, it can seem intimidating kind of to start building a network up from scratch, but it's incremental steps, which are going to help you get there. Yeah. As silly as it sounds, you got to take the first step. Um, again, I, I'm not a natural networker. I started... Uh, whenever LinkedIn started, but I probably started using it 12 years ago, little by little by little. And it's amazing. You know, uh, you get, you get a lot of contacts quickly. Now, not everybody needs 30,000 contacts. Um, mm. But do you have the right contacts for you? Maybe you have 500, but they're the best 500 in your industry. Great. Yeah. 
And I always say shoot high. If I'm going to go for a small group, then I want the best quality. Um, find out who are the leaders in your industry. If, if you're in finance, great. Who are the, the best CFOs or the best finance leaders? Um, you know, network with them, build that, that quality of network. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. So I, I think networks, I think it's probably close behind making presentations and public speaking for many people in terms of the fear. Absolutely. So it, it's great to hear. I think someone who describes themselves as uh, introverted, that you can have a strategy for building a network, which is really effective. Absolutely. And sometimes uh, chapter six in my book, chapter five, chapter six, um, fake it. So yeah. sometimes you just need to say, I'm going to pretend I'm brilliant at networking. <laughs> and, and literally, he's put on that actor's face. It's like, if I was playing a role of a brilliant networker, what would I do? I'd probably call this guy up and say, hello, do it. Yeah. It's like, but I'm afraid. No, you're, you're the actor who's doing that. So go, go play that role convincingly. Sometimes you just need to say, do I want this connection badly enough that I'm willing to overcome my fears to make it? Yeah. And actually, one, one other point related to this. So I found it so helpful since I started my newsletter and my podcast following up with connections because immediately you have something of value to offer them you, you know like you I put a lot of thought into the articles that I write and you know lots of my knowledge and experience goes into that and I like to think that if I offer that to somebody based on a conversation we've had which refers to their challenges so they get immediate value and that makes a massive difference doesn't it Absolutely. I think we're all interested in, in new information. We're all interested in people who provide us with new information. And as long as the information is valuable, it's presented in a way that uh, aligns with my worldview or how I like getting information. And you're never going to be perfect at that uh, with, with everyone. But yeah, I think people... I think most people genuinely want to connect with other interesting people. And if it's done in the right way, you're going to be successful at least 70% of the time. And, and that's a win. So just sw switching uh, gears a little. So what's the relationship between mental and physical health and top performance? Um, less than I would have hoped when I did the research for the book. So <laughs> when, I, when I did the research for the book, Ollie, I said to myself, I know that I'm going to find plenty of research that proves that being in great shape helps make you a higher performer at work. And I read through, you know, to do the book, read through more than 2,000 academic articles, each of which claimed some relationship between doing something at work and being being a higher performer. And I read a ton of exercise, or ten of uh, articles on exercise, intensity of exercise, timing of exercise, cardio versus weights. Research doesn't really support that that being in great shape allows you to be a high performer. Now, being dead certainly prevents you from being a high performer, so you need to be in reasonably good shape to show up and actually do your job. But what the, the research really pointed to is in terms of things that you can control with your body to be a high performer, sleep was number one, and number one by a huge margin. And obviously, there's been a lot about sleep recently, so it shouldn't su uh, surprise a lot of your listeners. But, you know, really focusing on quality of sleep, um, not as much quantity, but high quality sleep uh, is the foundation for you know, so much of our performance. If you aren't getting that right, any other tactic that you try is probably going to be uh, less impactful than it should be. Are you a napper, Mark? Um. A little bit. I used to be more of that when I was surprisingly in the office than now that I'm not in the office. In right. the office, I would normally do like a 10-minute nap um, after lunch because the science says that's the best timing for naps. Exactly. Um, 
but at home, uh, for I think because we're all more scheduled now, I don't think I have any time for that. It just kind of you know, plug through. But yeah. it's a great um, it's a great science based recommendation. Ten minutes, not twenty, not five. Ten minute nap, unbelievably powerful. It can make up for up to one hour of poor quality sleep. I, I am a napper and I wasn't actually ironically it's the other way around for me so when I spent a lot of time at home over the last 18 months um I gradually worked out and it, you have to kind of train yourself to be able to nap because it's switching your brain from working at full capacity to switching off enough to fall asleep it's quite difficult actually and uh I gradually built up a school but it does make a massive difference I, I've got three young kids one of whom is two and not the best sleeper so Finding these methods, these techniques of being able to give yourself a boost in the afternoon, I think is really effective. So, however, I always have to caveat it with uh, some sort of self-deprecating remark about not being lazy, or yeah, you know, because I think people do. People think they're napping on the job. My view is, if you deliver, no one's ever going to say that. It's like I don't know how this guy naps and gets this done. <laughs> exactly. So, f- from your point of view. How effective are you at sticking to your own rules? Because, you know, it's very easy. We work in roles where you're advising people and businesses about best practice, but it's sometimes difficult to stick to your own advice. Absolutely. So when I look at the the eight steps to high performance, I'll, I'll go through them one by one. So setting big goals. I think I'm actually pretty good at that. Even Everybody in my firm and myself, we have our three big goals for the year. Very clear about it. Um, behave to perform, second step. Pretty good. Um, the, the challenge is there's not a clear standard in our firm about what does you know, that look like. It's basically be a decent person, sell a lot of work, get along with others. Um, I think I'm pretty good at that. Um, grow yourself faster, step three. I could do more of that. So grow yourself faster is just what it sounds like. Are you stepping into the right experiences to become uh, smarter, more accomplished um, as quickly as possible? I probably don't seek as many of those out, although I do look for interesting novel work. Uh, that's helpful. Um, connect, as you mentioned. I think I'm... I'm good at the easy part. So to me, LinkedIn is easy. Click, click, click. That doesn't take a lot of effort. Uh, I still need to do more of the reach out part. And for me, that's about discipline. So I've got my list of the top 500 CHROs in the US. And I'm literally, I try and send an email to five of them every week. And this is a separate mm-hmm. email from the regular ones that say, ha, you haven't met me on Mark Efron. Our firm does this, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to do a better job connecting. That's a very low yield, by the way. Um, <laughs> um Focus on fit. So chapter five is about understanding where your company is going and what they'll need from you three years from now so you can get ahead of that. Um, I'm probably not as good as that as I should be because we're growing and getting into many different areas. And I probably need to focus more on how can I show up as someone who's actually leading a larger consulting firm in a few different areas. Um, Fake it, step six, which is about what are the behaviors that you should engage in, but you don't, that you just need to fundamentally fake doing that. Um, I think that I, I do that where necessary because I understand kind of how to do that, why to do that and feel comfortable doing it these days. Um, sleep, I'm pretty good at monitoring, measuring, and when I can optimizing that, I go for six and a half hours of quality sleep every night. That's my goal. Um, I don't always get there. I'm more like about a 615, but I've got my Fitbit. I'm a data freak when it comes to that. So I measure that. And then the eighth step is avoid distractions, which is 
focus on what works. Don't get distracted by 10,000 steps and other stuff. And because that's my stock and trade, I think I'm really good at that one. And the sleep model, I've got a whoop. I don't know if you know. You know yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I haven't yeah, used but, it, but I'm familiar with them. I, I think there's a... <laughs> My wife thinks it's gone too far, actually. I, I have become quite obsessive about sleep, hence why I focus on nap times and the optimum way to do it. So it's always a bit of a balance, isn't it? Because you don't want to become so preoccupied with falling asleep that you're thinking about sleep and uh, losing the, 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 the benefits. Well, and also recognizing we don't have as much control over it as we should have. So <clears throat> last night, I should have had a brilliant sleep night. So my wife was traveling, so I had the bed alone. I exercised really hard yesterday, so I should have been tired. I didn't have caffeine after 2 o'clock. Had a, I mean, everything that should have contributed. And when I looked at my stats this morning, it was my worst night of sleep in five <laughs> months. Right. I think it was because the cats were up and down on the bed. And it, but So you can do everything possible. It doesn't always work, but over time... Um, it should pay off. And to that last point, I mean, you talk about improving the things that you can control. And that's really key, isn't it? I mean, it might be your cats jumping on the bed or it might be other areas of life. You can only focus on improving the things that you can control. Yeah. And that's the um, actually the title that, that Harvard picked for the book. They, they drove the title more than I did. But um, don't worry. I mean, things like intelligence, you can't do a thing about. You can thank your mom and dad or curse your mom and dad uh, for that either way. Same thing with personality. So much of this is inborn um, and, and it tends not to change at all after you're 16 or so. So these are all things that are going to affect your performance at work. You can't do anything about it. So stop worrying about it. There are eight things you can do to drive higher performance. Pick one of those and focus on that. Yeah. So last question, and I'd like to end where we began, if we could, which is around goals. So like somebody listening today, they understand a little clearer now why setting goals are important. Well, how should they go about it? When you say set three big goals, what are the characteristics of effective goal setting? Sure. Um, well, and let's talk about it in a work context. But I think a lot of this probably applies in an individual personal context as well, as well. One, start with one. So what's the one biggest thing I can achieve at work that's going to allow me to be more successful? And this has to be about what the company needs from you, not what you want to do. And it's tough to kind of shift our mindset. What would the company value most? If you say, oh, I'm not sure. Cool. Ask five people. What's the one biggest thing I could do around here that's going to make the most impact? I guarantee you, your coworkers and your boss are happy to tell you that. Second, what's the discipline process for, for looking at that? Ideally, that's once a month. Put it on your calendar. You're going to examine how you're doing against that goal. Um, it might be also that you're asking for feedback on a frequent basis. Why don't we ask for feedback? We don't want to know. You should want to know how you're doing against that goal. So one, disciplined identification of what's the one most valuable thing I can do, structured follow-up, and then asking for feedback. Hey, I'm trying to I'm trying to go from here to here. How am I doing? Well, you're a little bit left. Okay, thank you. So taking your ego out of the equation, as difficult as it is for any of us to do, taking your ego out of the equation and saying, I want to be the best best I can possibly be at this. The only way I'm going to know is by asking other people, how's that journey going? So as simple as that sounds, most of us don't follow those three basic steps of, of setting that clear goal, structuring evaluation on it on a regular basis, kind of looking at how am I doing? And most importantly, asking other people, what could I do more of or less of going forward to be better at this particular goal? Brilliant. 
Mark, it's been so interesting to speak to you today and really helpful. Um, I'd advise uh, everybody to check out your book. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, Ollie. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Mark Efron. You'll find a link to his book and LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Also, please make sure to check out the accompanying newsletter, which I'll be publishing over the course of the next week. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Another great guest, as always, next week. Until then, have a good one.